Hello, and welcome to This Speech Life, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a pediatric SLP with 10 years experience in the school setting. Each week, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of that episode topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. Hello and welcome to today's podcast episode. I am so excited to have Linda Murphy here with us today. We are going to talk about all things co-regulation, but before we begin, I'm going to report our financial and non-financial disclosures. Linda's financial disclosures are that she's the author of Declarative Language Handbook and Co-Regulation Handbook, which are self-published and available on Amazon and Book Depository for individual sales and Ingram for retailers. Linda receives royalty payments for both books. She is the therapist and owner of a private practice and receives compensation for work as a therapist, consultant, and speaker. She will be receiving an honorarium for appearing on this episode as well from speechtherapypd.com. There are no relevant non-financial relationships to report. And as for myself, I am the host of the podcast, This Speech Life, and I receive compensation from speechtherapypd.com. And I have no non-financial relevant relationships to report as well. All right. So I am just so pleased and excited to introduce to all of you Linda Murphy. If you don't already know who she is, Linda is a speech language pathologist and relationship development intervention or RDI consultant. She co-founded Peer Projects Therapy from the Heart, a clinic in Beverly, Massachusetts, dedicated to helping kids and families by using a positive, thoughtful communication style that emphasizes understanding, patience, respect, and kindness. Linda has been working with individuals with social learning differences for over 25 years. She leads trainings on the topic of social learning, has authored Declarative Language Handbook, Co-Regulation Handbook, numerous articles, and co-authored the book Social Thinking and Me with Michelle Garcia Winner. Linda lives north of Boston with her husband and their two busy, lovable boys. Her work can be found at declarativelanguage.com. All right, Linda, thank you so much for joining me here today. I just can't wait to jump in. So we're just going to jump right in. What are three things that we need to know about co-regulation? Yeah. And Caitlin, I wanted to just say, I love um, how in your podcast, you're just very much about practical application and just helping people know what to do on the ground, because that's really where it matters. And I, as I wrote both of my books, Co-Regulation Handbook and Declarative Language Handbook, very much I, you know, it's based in research and theory and things that I've learned along the way. But it's very much meant to be, you know, okay, I'm on the ground, I'm with a child or a young adult, what do I do? And how can I apply these ideas in real time? So the three things, the first question you said, the three things that school-based SLPs need to know about co-regulation. So the first one is that I want everybody to know how I'm thinking about co-regulation. I know that there's a lot of talk about co-regulation out there specifically even 
with respect to the nervous system and self-regulation. And those are very important ways to understand co-regulation. But as a speech language pathologist, I'm thinking about it a little bit further. I like to think about it, you know, kids need that caregiver to support them to regulate. But then once they are in that good place and they go a little bit further down the road, that's where I like to think about dynamic communication and the next set of things that we as speech language pathologists might be thinking about. So skill building, learning new things, moving outside one's comfort zone, dynamic communication. So the first thing, just to repeat, that I want everyone to know is just that I'm thinking about co-regulation differently than maybe an occupational therapist. I'm thinking about it in terms of dynamic communication, which is based in de- uh, on Dr. Alan Fogel's definition from his book, Developing Through Relationships. And essentially, that definition in my own words is that we are in sync moment to moment with our communication partner. So everything that happens or as an interaction unfolds is in the moment and immediately connected to what happened just prior to a communicative act. So when we think of co-regulation in that way, just being in sync moment to moment, it means that we are each our own independent communication partner. And we don't dictate what the other person does or what the other person says, but we really give space for the unique communication that our partner brings at that moment in time. So number one is just we're in sync moment to moment. Number two, what this means is that as therapists, we really have to be able to slow down because if we enter an engagement with a child or a young adult and have an agenda that's really rigid or feel like we need to really plow through a lot of things, then we might be more controlling in our communication. We might not be able to let go and allow that dynamic communication to unfold. And it just becomes a more demanding interaction that can be stressful to the child. So in order to get that in-sync moment-to-moment exchange, we have to be able to slow down and just let go of our agenda in that moment in time so that we can allow the child or the young adult time and space to be unique in their communication that responds to ours. And then third, as we do this, as we really slow down, are present in the moment with the child or our learner, receive their communication that's contingent on ours, what develops over time is this really important feedback loop between us and the student that we're working on, where we really become better at reading their cues in the moment. We become better at understanding their communication. We become better at understanding their learning style. And because of all that, we become better teachers and guides to them in the moment. We begin to understand better what they might need from us in order to learn something new, how we might need to scaffold or approach something differently. But if we're moving quickly based on our agenda, we just don't ever slow down to allow that dynamic communication to unfold, which allows us to appreciate who that child is in the moment, which allows us to appreciate who they are as learners. And in an ongoing way, we make adjustments so that we keep them successful and supported 
to learn, to venture outside their comfort zone, you know, to feel brave enough to try something new. We just create that, that feedback loop also just creates safety for them because they understand or they feel confident that we understand them. So that's a mouthful, but (laughs) those are three things, just the starting point for understanding how to enter in exchange with co-regulation in mind. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for bringing up that point of, you know, you're thinking of co-regulation from a vastly different lens. We've heard co-regulation a ton when it comes to occupational therapy, but we've not, I've not heard of it in the way that you've presented and that I've seen in your work. And so it's been really valuable to me to even think about how I'm working with students or, or even with, you know, my own family members too. It's been really valuable. And I really, really like that point about slowing down. You know, as I'm thinking back onto clients of mine where I might have come in with a rigid plan for the day, or even maybe I don't have a rigid plan for the day, but I have it in my head how I think it should go, which I guess is a rigid plan for the day. And I might not pick up on their subtle things of the ways that they're responding in ways that could really allow me to get deeper into their language, you know, and like, oh, is there, are they not understanding this? Are they responding this way because they don't understand this particular word or they think, you know, it's a, maybe I'm using too much language. Like there's, there's so many different reasons why a student or a client might respond. So I really like that piece of it, of, of slowing down and following the child's lead in a sense of just really seeing the child for, or the young adult for, for who they are. And as you were talking about that, and I was reflecting on that, I was thinking about how much more job fulfillment we have when we build those connections. Definitely. Yeah, right. The child feels connected to us. They build trust in us that we understand them, we'll support them. The relationship deepens, the interaction is positive. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also thinking about a child that I worked with recently that the way that I had responded, it was almost like nobody had ever really understood the child before you know, um, of the way that I had responded because their communication style is very unique to them. And so that was, I really like how you brought those points up of just simply slowing down. And then when we slow down and we are in sync, how that positive feedback loop does happen. So thank you for, for kind of, you know, just laying that groundwork for us as we start to jump into what this looks like. Do you recommend any resources to help us learn more about co-regulation or things that we can apply? Yeah. And it's, this is the number two, right? Of your three, two, one. If I share two resources. So as you mentioned, I think declarativelanguage.com is my main website and There's a lot of resources that I have on there right now. I have a blog where I publish a post every Sunday. I'm currently organizing my posts because I have over 100 by now. And one of the sections that I just titled is called co-regulation FAQs. So some of the things that I think are really important to understand or that people might ask me at the beginning are on that underneath that category. But you'll find just lots of resources in general on declarativelanguage.com, including just other interviews that I've done, things that I've written. 
There's, of course, co-regulation handbook. It's just where I try to put all my ideas in one place and just get it in a practical handbook for people so that, you know, of course, we can appreciate the theory and how I'm thinking about it. But on the ground, here's what you do and here's how you do it. But also, don't forget, it's all about that positive relationship. That's the ground level for sure. And then just to continue with my stuff, there's Linda K. Murphy is a a website where I just have other articles also. Some are related to co-regulation. And then, so separate from my resources, I can direct people to RDI Connect, which is the main website for RDI or Relationship Development Intervention, because this is the community within which I learned about co-regulation and how to think about co-regulation in this way. So we, in that community, we talk about co-regulation a lot and being in sync moment to moment with the other person and very much talking about slowing down. So you can go to RDI Connect and then there's many other RDI consultants around the world who are also trained and actively thinking about co-regulation in this way. So there could be, you know, one or several in your area. Fantastic. So for those that are not familiar with RDI, can you give us just a brief synopsis? Yeah. So Relationship Development Intervention was created by Dr. Stephen Gutstein and Dr. Rochelle Shealy. And it's very much based on supporting the parent or the caregiver-child relationship to create what's called guided participation, which just means that the caregiver and the child have that very strong feedback loop moment to moment. So the caregiver is increasingly becoming better at reading the child's cues, supporting their learning at the place where they're at, helping them feel safe and supported so that they can move outside their comfort zone, develop new skills as they're ready, and support dynamic communication. Within RDI, we work really closely with caregivers, maybe through videotaping parent-child interactions and then talking together about what we see. You know, for example, moments where they could slow down a little bit or we notice the child benefited from increased processing time, which can help the parent just internalize that idea that it's it's really helpful to slow our pace so that we stay in sync with the child. We might teach them about declarative language, you know, which you mentioned declarative language handbook, but for me, declarative language and co-regulation really are inseparable partners, and I use them constantly together. I wrote co-regulation handbook after declarative language handbook because I realized I needed to tell people this material as well because I just use it. I use the two constantly together. But within RDI, you know, these are two of the, the areas that we're always practicing with parents to, so that they create a communicative environment and a learning environment that's positive, inviting, and feel safe for their kids. And that feedback loop just gets stronger and stronger. Fantastic. Thank you for explaining that for our listeners who are, this idea of co-regulation is brand new to them, as well as RDI being brand new to them. So as we are learning about co-regulation and this idea of a positive feedback loop, which we create by staying in sync with the child, And then by slowing down and responding to their cues and learning their cues, that's a huge part, learning their cues. So what is one actionable strategy that we can Mm -hmm. start doing tomorrow as we are trying to figure out how to apply these concepts? 
Yeah, because we're talking about the idea of it, what we mean, where you can go for more. And now it's like, okay, what do you do on the ground to make this happen, right? So I do have a blog post called Co-Regulation, Where Do I Start? But essentially, when you get started, you always, always want to think about competence for the child. And not just when you start, but constantly as you are with them. So for me, competence in this way just means that the child can do something on their own with just a little bit of time or a little bit of help. So if you're in a situation where you are prompting a child a lot, then that is not a competent role for them. And you want to back up and think about how can I break this down into a smaller unit or scaffold a little bit differently so that they are really and truly competent. So competence is so important because, you know, what I believe through this model or this way of thinking is that when kids don't feel competent, that's when we start to see what we see as challenging behaviors. So they might go into fight, flight, or freeze because they feel uncertain, because they feel anxious, because they don't feel competent. And because of that, you know, we might see it really could be anything. It could be shutting down, and that's perceived as being as the child ignoring. They could bolt, run out of the room. They could hide under a table. For an older child or a teenager, it could be being sarcastic or talking back. But we always just really, when we see that communication from kids that's perceived as challenging behavior, through this lens, I always think, okay, at this moment in time, the child does not feel competent. And it doesn't matter if the child has been competent in a particular role in the past. It's just for whatever reason at this moment in time, it's not a competent role. You know, it could be that they're tired or it could be that they've had a hard day or they're hungry. So there's just other things that might get in the way of competence. So if we always start with competence, then we're in a good place. So that's number one. But then the other pieces of it are that we always want to find a role that's authentic within what we're doing, which just means it's real. So it's not a contrived role where we're asking them to do something that we don't really need done, or we're asking them a question that we already know the answer to. Those are not authentic. Authentic is real. It's meaningful. And then the third piece is contingent. So we think about you know, for example, something that we might need to do, and we'd like to engage the child. So we think about, okay, within this thing that I want to do, say it's setting the table, for example, you know, what is a role that the child might be competent in that's authentic within that daily routine? And then that could be contingent on a role that I could have, where maybe I assume the part that's too hard for the child right now. Or even if we think about in the classroom, say kids have to sharpen their pencils, or we need a pencil sharpener to take care of a a few pencils. I think about, okay, what's a competent role within that multi-step process of taking your pencil over to the pencil sharpener, you know, putting it in, sharpening it, bringing it back. You know, it could be that they're the pencil carrier and they bring it to someone who is then the pencil sharpener or turns the crank you know, or one child could be in charge of putting the pencil in, and then the teacher does the crank. Or maybe the child would be competent at turning the crank, in which case they would put, you know, the teacher maybe could put the pencil in, and then the child gets to turn the handle. 
but you just want to think about what are authentic opportunities, you know, around the classroom that we might need to do anyway, that we could create this partnership with a child where they have a competent role that's contingent on ours. So that's one, (laughs) confident, authentic, contingent. Did you know that SpeechTherapyPD.com has weekly live and interactive webinars? We are the fastest growing CE provider. Subscribe today to get access to over 750 different courses in audio or video format. You know, it's interesting as you're talking about this and I'm thinking about maybe sometimes that I haven't done this or times that I've done this without realizing what I was doing. So, you know, I had this, I was in charge of the lunchtime intramurals program at a school. I know, probably a bad boundary, <laughs> but, but it was a lot of fun. And there was a kid that was always getting in trouble. So then I gave him the job of helping me set up and I needed the help. You know, he was in charge of all of the cones and it gave him something to do. So he wasn't getting in trouble beforehand. He wasn't getting in trouble after. And all the kids knew that he was in charge of it. So it kind of gave him, I was thinking, just kind of some fun self-esteem and got him, you know, got him focused doing something great. And so as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yes, he was competent. He knew how to set up the cones for soccer. He, it was an authentic role. I needed him to do that in the moment. And then contingent, you know, it was something that we had to do together that had to, that had to get done. So, I mean, that wasn't necessarily in my speech room, but it's interesting. And I, you know, it's a, I think I learned that somewhere along the way is like a classroom management strategy of giving kids jobs. But as I'm seeing this, there's a lot more to it than just keeping those kids busy, right? Yeah. And I love that example. It's so wonderful. I think it shows that some of the best sessions are in more dynamic, natural environments such as that, as opposed to sitting at a table with flashcards. So in that moment in time, there was real life vocabulary that you likely were able to model for him. So, you know, I don't know what the setup was, but but imagine if you were holding the cones and you handed to them one at a time. Then as you create that process of I hand it to you and you place it, you're giving multiple opportunities for him to visually reference you, for him to notice your nonverbal communication, you know, maybe follow directions could be incorporated into it if that was something that was important for him. Like, oh, you could put this cone to the left of the blue one, something like that. But yes, so many wonderful learning opportunities are just embedded in that process and they're real and they're going to be meaningful for kids and they're going to take that with them. Feel good because you gave them a competent role and the learning will stick because it was so meaningful. Yeah, you know, as you're talking, I'm getting really excited about, okay, how do we get out of the speech room more? This student, he wasn't a speech student. He was just... It's a long story how I ended up doing the lunchtime intramurals. But, <laughs> but anyway, he was just one of the students that participated in the lunchtime intramurals. But as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, how can we get more creative about getting outside of the speech room? Or how do we make the speech room a more functional place? Yeah. With creating some of these things that are not just flashcards or not just, you know, okay, let's do the same thing every day. Totally. Yeah. And even to expand on what you're saying, like, I think some of the most valuable time that you could have with kids is the transition, like 
to the speech room and back and just really take your time and think about meaningful opportunities. So, you know, things that I've done with kids in school settings were water plants around the school. So the co-regulatory pattern became we fill up the watering can together. Together we walk to each plant and water it. And depending on the child's motor skills, that determined what role I gave to them. So for example, maybe we carried the can together and together we poured, or maybe I carried the can and handed it to them because a different child maybe would have the motor control to water the plant on their own. So it kind of depends on what's competent for each individual student. You know, recycling bins, we've brought those to from a classroom down to the recycling area, and that could be a co-regulatory opportunity that's really rich. It could be you take one side of the bin and the child takes the other, so then you're walking in partnership. And something like that could even be transferred from adult to student to student to student, and they carry it together, so then you also get a really nice peer interaction opportunity. You know, anytime there's deliveries, I know teachers use this strategy a lot, like errands to the office, bring this to the office. But just knowing like it's that shift from it's not just a job to keep them busy, but if we slow it down, we can really create a wonderful routine that we can then expand upon and create so many language learning or communication opportunities along the way. I love that. I love that idea of, and you you said it so perfectly of which comes back to that positive feedback loop of slowing some of these things down to create learning. And especially, I mean, maybe I'm not watering plants on my way from the classroom to the speech room, but I can come up with some, you know, some sort of job for the students to do or something for the students Mm -hmm. to do. That's a competent role. Yeah, I'm I'm going to start thinking about this. Were you going to say something else? Yeah, well, and sometimes it might not be a job that you have on your list. But I, um, you know, for example, with that child that I watered plants, I just looked for opportunities and I saw plants. So I just went to the principal and said, I don't know if you have a plant waterer yet, but would it be okay if I did this? twice a week during my session with the student, because I think it would be really nice. And I think everyone in a school community can get on board with kids assuming more competent roles around the school, because it just helps everyone feel part of that community, feel ownership, feel pride, because everybody really wants to have competent roles, you know, just roles where they feel good and feel like they're contributing. And where our skill comes in is just the scaffolding so that the role that we give them is just right in the moment so that they are competent. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I thinking back to elementary, I'm thinking about, you know, my favorite teachers had classroom jobs for each of us and we'd Mm -hmm. cycle through those jobs and how fun it was to to do that. And so now I'm starting to think, okay, how do I do that within the speech room or how do I do that within my, you know, my clinic? Um, of yeah. jobs for students to do and ones that they can be competent and feel good about. So, you know, thinking about that on a large scale, how can we start thinking about it maybe during a speech session? So I guess, do you have any suggestions about things to do within a speech session? We've talked about transitions and different things we could do outside of the speech room. What do you think it might look like for us during a speech session? 
Yeah, I think like even if we just stick with authentic tasks for a little bit within your speech room, and this is what I tell or talk about with caregivers or parents in a home setting, it's just think about what you normally do on your own quickly just to get it done and think about how you could maybe reshape that to be a partnership and authentic learning opportunity with the child. So within the speech room, authentic might be a bulletin board. If you have a bulletin board and you have to change it every so often or seasonally, that's a really nice time. You know, it could be the child is the taker downer and you're the putter awayer, or they hand you the new thing and you thumbtack it on the board, or maybe they could be good at placing a thumbtack. If there's books, like say, for example, you have a bookshelf and you want to sort your books and you just never have time or you want to alphabetize them, totally get that child in on that. You could think about placing the books on the floor and then depending on what their role might be, you know, you hand them a book and they put it on the shelf. Or if they're a little bit further along in being able to scan and locate a book, you could incorporate following directions like, oh, I'm ready for the the red book now. Or can you give me the smallest book on the floor? That's the one that I would love right now on my bookshelf. So you could think about how to include them in something that you have to do anyway and create co-regulation, but then maybe also incorporate whatever it is their goals might be, whether it's understanding concepts, following directions, even you know reading nonverbal communication. You can put your hold your hands out for them to hand you something and wait scaffolding is needed with declarative language so that they stay competent and learn that nonverbal communication in the moment. So those would be kind of authentic opportunities. And then if you want to think about, you know, speech games that you're playing with kids, just depending on what you are working on, you just always want to, it's not that you have to pick a game that's just right, but you always want to modify a game as needed to play it in a way so that the child always has a competent role. You know, a lot of the times board games have pieces and cards and dice, and it can just get really busy really fast. So with any game, I always just think about, okay, how do I scale this back so that they're competent? There's a chapter in Co-Regulation Handbook called Adjusting Complexity, and I have a post on it as well on my blog. But it just means how do we scale back our environment so that what is most important at that moment in time is the thing that's most salient, you know? So if we are working on turn-taking or reciprocity and we're playing a game that has a lot of cards, a lot of pieces, dice, then the reciprocity or the pattern of me and you back and forth is going to compete with all the other stuff. So I might think about tweaking a game so that there's just one game piece on the board rather than two or three or four. You know, if we think about Candyland, I might have one gingerbread person. So for a younger child, I might have one gingerbread person and together we take turns to move the figurine to the castle versus one for each of us, which just makes it busier. So the co-regulation there is, it depends on the child and what's going to be competent. But for example, you know, if one child is really great at colors, but fine motors a little bit trickier, then I might then be the, they could be the color namer. 
and I show them the card and they get to say what the color is and then their peer gets to be the peace mover. So I'm just going to think about, okay, what is competent for each individual child? If it's a group or if it's one-to-one, then it's just me and the child. And just give them that role that gives them success, which supports them to sustain engagement over time because they feel good. And then just, you know, add complexity or, or make give them more responsibility as you sense they're ready. But that could be one example of, for example, like when you're playing a game or something like that. I love that. That is so much fun to make it a team candy land and mm-hmm. everyone has a part and they're working together. I can see how that's really great for peer-to-peer interaction as well. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love that. And you've touched a little bit about declarative language, but for our listeners that may not know that term, how would you describe declarative language? Yeah, and declarative language is really important to and effective. Essentially, declarative language is commenting. And as you start to use declarative language, just the most important thing to do is just to become aware of our own communication when we're with our students. So become aware of, am I asking them questions that place demands on them? Am I asking them questions that I already know the answer to, and therefore it's not authentic anymore? Or am I placing a demand by using an imperative, which just means telling them what to do? Declarative language instead just comments in the moment. So it might comment on what we observe. It might comment on our thought, our opinion, our feeling, a memory, and then provide space for the child or the student to process that information and then respond. So let's see. So an example, so say we're playing Candyland and it's the child's turn to pick a card. Instead of saying pick a card, which is an imperative, or instead of saying, whose turn is it, which is a question that places a demand, I might say something like, Billy, I think it's your turn now. Or I remember Susie just went, and after Susie is you, so it's your turn, Billy. So I'm just going to comment on what I remember, what I see, what I notice, to give them the information that they need in the moment without placing a demand. And we do that because I want the student to have the information that's important. But when we place a demand, often kids can go into fight, flight, or freeze because it's a demand because they don't feel competent. And then we end up seeing, we could see challenging behaviors. And so declarative language is just really effective in supporting kids to feel safe, supporting kids to feel supported supporting kids to engage without worry that we're going to place a demand on them that they might or might not be able to meet while still giving them the information that they need and teaching them. Like we most certainly teach with declarative language because we're thoughtful in the vocabulary that we're using. We're thoughtful in narrating the environment to give them social cues or social information about the social context. But we're doing all this teaching in a generous way that's paced so that they can process and without, again, without placing a demand. So we're giving information versus trying to get them to do something. The two phrases that I've really started to use too in the past year for declarative language and co-regulation is declarative language is giving over getting. So, you know, we're getting rid of the get. And this is a phrase that Dr. Stephen Gutstein used when I was training to be an RDI consultant. And it's just... 
it's just always stayed with me because as soon as we're trying to get something from kids, it's a demand. They feel it. There's pressure. They could disengage or they could have a challenging behavior, but it interrupts our flow and our connection together. But if we're always giving at the just right level, then chances are we stay engaged. Our feedback loop is stronger and there'll be more great learning opportunities and learning as we go. So giving over getting. And then for co-regulation, I think of partnership over prompting. So if we're prompting a child, put on your coat, put on your jacket, put on your shoes, get your backpack, we're prompting, prompting, prompting. And co-regulation would be that partnership of let's get your backpack together or we can put your coat on, I will hold it and you can put your hands through. So you're thinking about just how to create partnerships to move forward through routines, for example, and get rid of the prompting. It just feels better. It's more positive. The child engages more readily because they feel safe, connected, and successful. Yeah, this is a total mindset shift. Mm -hmm. Complete mindset shift of anything that I might have learned in grad school or in my clinical placements ahead of, you know, during grad school. And just what I've seen in the field, the majority of practitioners, I would say it's more of that getting versus giving. So Mm -hmm. that phrase really just honed it in for me, you know, that idea of, of giving over getting. And, you know, at first I'm thinking as you're talking, at first I kind of had this, well, where's the therapeutic benefit if we're not putting demands on the child, but where's the therapeutic benefit if the child is melting down or freezing or flighting or fighting if there's demands on them. Mm -hmm. Right. Is the goal to put demands on people or is the goal for the child to learn and to grow and to develop new skills? You know, that's my goal is I want you to grow. I want you to feel comfortable with new experiences. I want you to develop positive relationships. I want you to have communication that's successful And to have all those things, we have to stay connected. And it's not that there's not going to be demands. Of course there are, because as you transfer more responsibility to the child, they have that opportunity to struggle and engage with that mental challenge. But the difference is we're offering them that challenge at the place that's just right at that moment in time that they won't be afraid of it, but rather they engage with it. Whereas if we're just randomly placing demands and the child shutting down, they're not learning, our connection is broken, and the road ahead becomes compromised. Absolutely. Absolutely. As you were talking, it was just like, ding, 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 ding. You know, at first, it's that old school mindset of, well, wait a second, isn't this what my role is, is, you know, increase demands on the child and see them grow with this increasing demands which is, I mean, weight training, but do we want our students to weight train or do we want them to learn and grow in a way? I mean, I hate weight training. I know there are people that love it, (laughs) but it's, you know, I'd much rather learn through swimming in the ocean or swimming in the pool where it's a lot more comfortable. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And even I know I just said this, but this is what's resonating for me too. another spot just to highlight again is, you know, it's not like, again, it's not that we want them to respond to demands. What we want is for them to engage 
positively with challenge because that's where growth happens. So we have the choice to present a challenge that shuts them down, or we have the opportunity to present a challenge that they engage with and grow from. And with co-regulation and declarative language, we're finding those just right challenges such that the child feels comfortable and confident and confident engaging so that they then grow. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for highlighting that piece (laughs) of engaging positively, you know, with the challenge. And that is done through the hard work of the relationship building that we've done with them and slowing down and reading their cues. And yeah, I just, I really like the way that you broke that down. And then the partnership over prompting, a lot of that language is something that I've been really trying hard to utilize the last couple of months of let's, you know, do this together or let's do this. Cause I know that there's some, anyway, it won't go down that road, but what I was going to say is that's something that I've really been trying to utilize a lot is more of that, that communal language of us doing something together. And so that made a lot of sense to me, that idea, when you put that together with the partnership over prompting, that made a lot of sense. And, you know, as I think personally, If my husband were to say, I want you to work on the yard this weekend, I'm going to say, okay, what are you going to (laughs) do? But if he says, hey, why don't we work on the yard together this weekend? Okay, that sounds like it could be fun. Right. So that makes so much sense to me. So much sense to me. And as I'm thinking about, okay, how am I going to bring this to my sessions? How am I going to think about this? And the first thing, to think about is maybe what I should say is as I'm going back to my sessions and thinking about past sessions where I might have seen some of that fight, flight, or freeze, you know, thinking to, okay, what role did the student have? Mm -hmm. What was the role? You know, maybe I thought the role was something that it wasn't. If that makes right. sense, I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. You know, I guess we could talk about Candyland, right? Like, I mm-hmm. think my role is simply you just play this game, but the student's role was okay, I've got to keep track of the cards, I've got to keep track of my game piece, I've got to keep track of whose turn it is, I've got to keep track of all of these things. And that might have been too much for the student to do at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before you know it, maybe they're under the table because it's too much. (laughs) Or maybe you're prompting a lot to get their attention because they're distracted by all the pieces. Yeah. So those could have been ways where the child was not competent. And instead of prompting them to come out from under the table, prompting them to pay attention, prompting them to stop touching the pieces that aren't theirs, we can just in that moment carve it differently, take everything off the board and start simple, just one piece, or we hold the cards to start. Awesome. Awesome. And I can see how that slowing down piece can really help us do some of that detective work as to what the students' cues are. You know, are they, like you said, are they hiding under the table? Are they, what is it that their behavior is showing us? Maybe it has to do with the pieces. Maybe it has to do with whatever. So, yeah, you know, taking that moment to slow down and seeing how they're responding. And then also, I mean, I guess, especially as we're starting out some of this work for the first time, we're probably going to mess up a couple times. 
But if we're going slow, we'll be able to recognize, okay, that wasn't it. Let me try again. Okay, that wasn't it. Let me try again. Instead of, okay, well, here it is. We'll just keep going. So yeah, yeah. And I'm so glad you said that because that's really important. Like the the point isn't for us to get it exactly right each and every time. The point is for us to be in sync and to recognize when we've got that competent role just right versus when we need to modify or tweak or scaffold a little bit differently. And as long as we are in sync and going at a pace that is good for the child, then we can recognize when we've hit that roadblock and we need to do something differently. You know, and that's the other shift too, when they're not responding you know, don't prompt more, pause, take a step back and realize we're the one that needs to change or modify something in the moment to better create that competent role, whatever it might be. Awesome. Thank you. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. And I think that that's such a huge piece in when you were discussing RDI is it's all about the caregiver supporting the child. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it it seems like it's not necessarily about what the child, the child doesn't have to do anything to participate in RDI is what I'm trying to say. You know, it's all about how the parent or the clinician is working, whoever the communication partner is for the child. It's all about our response to the child and how we are supporting the child. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. It's about coaching the parents to respond in a way that's supportive for the child, supports the child to engage, to stay engaged, to navigate the breakdowns when they happen, know that that's okay, but know to how, to, how to come back, meaning what might the caregiver modify in that moment to re-engage the child in a way that they feel competent. Yeah. And that's what I love. I really love about RDI because it's not about, again, I'm going to go back to what we talked about before. It's not about getting the child to do this, that, the other. It's just not. It's about how can I change what I'm doing so that I'm the most supportive communication partner to this individual who's learning differently than me so that they engage and trust and move outside their comfort zone so that over time they can gain new skills, assume more responsibility, grow and learn. I love that. I love that. Even as I'm thinking about my most, you know, challenging students or my most challenging clients, as I'm thinking back to, okay, well, why were they challenging? What was it that I was not doing to support them because every child can be competent. Every child can be Mm -hmm. competent in some way, some role. And so I think I really like that model of coming back and looking at how I'm responding, how I'm supporting a child. Maybe they need more support for this point in time. And you mentioned this before, you know, sometimes kids come to us And kids have their own little lives outside of our speech room or outside of our speech therapy hour. And so 
it's a good reminder of, okay, well, this might have worked last week, but this kid has had X, Y, and Z happen to them between this time and last week, or they didn't have their nap, or they didn't have their lunch, or whatever. And so that's a really good reminder, too, as to, you know, kids are just as, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> a variable as adults can be, you know, it, it's this fascinating <laughs> thing to me that we expect kids to perform exactly like adults, and yet adults can't really perform the ways we want them to. Right. Yeah. Like sometimes, some days you're talkative, some days you're just quieter because maybe you're a little tired or you have some things weighing on your mind that you're not sharing with other people, but it's there. But other days you're at the top of your game and everything's great and you can do it all. Yeah. But we all vary day to day. And, and again, the stronger that relationship is with the other person, the more you're likely to stick with them and try new things, learn new skills, you know, get at all those, those things that we want to support kids to learn. Yeah, so I guess I, this might be a terrible question. But how long would you say it takes with a child to really build that strong, positive relationship? Yeah, it doesn't take long. I think, like, so for example, when We've met kids at our practice for the first time, you know, and we hear these reports of how they can have challenging behavior and the parents might be really worried about how they're going to act when we're with us. Within that very first session, usually the child feels safe because we're not placing demands on them. We're connecting with them. Absolutely. But I'm very thoughtful in what I ask of them. So I'm communicating with declarative language. So there's no language demands on them. And then when I do invite them to engage, I'm absolutely going to be thinking about what's a role that they might be competent in. And when I offer that competent role, nine times out of 10, they do engage. You know, so we've had parents at our practice say, wow, I can't believe how well my child did in this session. I'm really pleased with how well they did. So it doesn't take long, but we have to be good about those pieces and just being thoughtful about how we invite them to engage, when we invite them to engage, to very much respect who they are and how they're communicating, just responding to their communication in the moment so that they feel honored and valued and validated for who they are. Yeah. So it doesn't take long especially if it's a new relationship. I think if you've had a a habit of a more negative style of interacting with a child, you know, it might take a little bit just for them to trust that something new is happening and you're communicating in a different way. But parents that I work with, it's very possible. You know, parents have said it feels like a lot of work up front because that parent or caregiver, for example, is just really working very hard themselves on monitoring their communication working hard to not use imperatives or questions, working to give their child the processing time that they might need. So I think the work to be done is just modifying and becoming aware of your own communication. But once you've got it, kids feel the difference and things very much change. So yeah, so I don't think, you know, I can't give a timeline, of course, but it happens. It yeah. happens. Yeah. It, as you're talking, I'm thinking, okay, it happens much quicker than we think 
you know, it might happen. And I guess my question was more along the lines of maybe kids that we haven't, that we have on our caseload, that we haven't maybe been utilizing this communication style with them. And so that's good to know that, you know, all hope is not lost for for building relationships with these kids. Yeah, not at all. It's never too late. Never, never, never. And it's just a matter of forming new memories with the child. So they might have memories of you communicating in a certain way or not giving enough processing time. But as soon as you start to form those new memories and reflect back on them, it builds. It very much builds. Awesome. Yeah, I remember you in our previous conversation, you were talking about how, you know, we can use those positive memories to build those things and tell a child using declarative language. I remember you were really good at this. I remember you really like this. And Mm -hmm. that can be that can be really powerful for the child as well as for ourselves. Yeah, and it very much unfolds over time. As you share memories, you plan ahead, you hold on to what's important to them and reflect back on it. Like everything becomes easier because you have that positive communication, that shared experience. And you hold on to this information for them so that they know they're important. And, you know, say, for example, you need to transition your sessions over, but the child really wants to play something. So an example might be, you know, I I understand you really want to play this game right now. We don't have time today, but let's remember together and we can play it next time. Or you could create co-regulation. Here, I'll get a piece of paper and let's write together the name of the game. I can write the first two letters and then you can write the last two or whatever it might be. And then you have that piece of paper to refer back to. And then the next time when you see the child, you follow through, which again, builds that trust. I remember last time you wanted to play this game. We wrote it down together. Here it is. I'm wondering if you still want to play it today because I want to make sure we do because I know that's important to you. So the more you build that narrative with the student over time, Together, you get that shared narrative, the trust builds, and the dynamic changes for sure. But hard work is it's on us, you know, it's on us to be mindful in those ways. And I think, you know, as you said, it's a shift, like it's a way of communicating, like saying out loud, remembering what we've talked about, planning ahead with kids, reflecting back on it, creating opportunities for partnership. So these are all changes that we make. But once we do, I feel like it flies because you have the positive relationship. And once you have that, you can do anything, really. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like the more we practice it, the easier it gets as well of using Mm -hmm. declarative language. And and I really love the example that you gave of playing Candyland when you said, you know, I'm not saying pick up, you know, take the card. I'm not saying whose turn is it? I really love that because I think that that made it really clear of what it looks like to use declarative language of, hmm, I think it might be your term, you know, Bobby. And, and that is also authentic language. You're not asking a question that everybody knows the answer to. You're not saying something that everybody knows the answer to, you know, and you're not placing that demand. I thought that that was such a clear example. So thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. All right. I've been taking notes like crazy through this conversation of just what this is going to look like. And the two pieces that I'm really grateful that you shared those quotes of giving over getting and the partnership over prompting. 
which Mm -hmm. partnership over prompting that just sounds more fun. And then the giving over getting is, is so good in clarifying, okay, I'm giving the child something. I'm not trying to get something from them, you know, which it makes sense. One of the first things I tell parents when I first work with them is less questions, more modeling, because, Mm -hmm. you know, with parents, it's so hard. They're so used to thinking that's how we teach kids is what's this? What color is the dog? What does the dog say? You know, a million questions. Okay, how about we just tell them? Or we just have a right. you know, a one-sided conversation. Mm-hmm. Right, because our goal is for them to learn and they don't need to be quizzed to learn. They just need the information. <laughs> right, right, right. So mm-hmm. that, that giving over getting makes a lot of sense to me. And thinking about it, in much broader terms than simply just those simple times where I guess what I'm trying to say is just really being intentional about when I do place demands on kids and what that looks like and Mm -hmm. why I'm placing a demand on a kid and not just placing a demand on a kid because that's what I've been taught to do. Right. And even, yeah. And even just to rephrase or when I offer them a competent role, you know, and then again, it's, you know, inviting them to engage with something or perhaps engage with a challenge, but you're setting it up such that, you know, it's likely within their abilities. Thank you. I'm so excited to continue trying to jump into this work. Another thing that you said, or that you've been talking about, you know, we've heard about co-regulation, maybe from the occupational therapist standpoint, and something that they talk about is, oh, we need to regulate kids before there's the dysregulation. And really that's what this whole thing is. We're giving kids competent roles from the beginning so that they're Mm -hmm. not getting into that dysregulated state. Right. Yeah. Competent roles really support regulation for sure. Mm -hmm. So thank you. It definitely does. Yeah. All right. Well, I am going to have you as we're (laughs) kind of closing up here. Can you recap your three things we need to know, the two resources and then the Mm -hmm. one actionable strategy? Yeah. So everything from the top? Yes. Okay. So the three things I'm thinking about co-regulation using Alan Fogel's definition from developing through relationships, which just means we're in sync moment to moment, which just supports dynamic communication. You know, I'm not telling the other person what to do or what to say, but I'm really giving space for authentic communication. So being in sync, moment to moment. Number two, when we want to get in sync with our communication partner, it means that we must slow down. And, you know, it's not that we can't have plans or things that we want to do, but first and foremost, we have to let go of our agenda in the moment so that our communication partner can authentically respond contingently. And as we slow down, Number three, what happens is we as teachers or therapists just really are in a great place to read that student's cues in the moment. We create this strong feedback loop, which allows us to see who they are, how they communicate, how they learn, and from that become better teachers to them because we can figure out how best to respond how to scaffold, always at that moment in time. Because as we said, you know, we don't know what else might be going on for them. You know, there could be fatigued or hungry or something 
happened earlier in the day that was upsetting to them, and they have that emotion with them under the surface. So as we slow down and just be present in the moment, we're much better able to read and respond in a way that's supportive and helpful to the child. So those are the three, what to know. The two resources, right? Go into that next one. Co-regulation handbook, which is on Amazon, but lots of resources on declarativelanguage.com, my blog, some recordings, examples of both co-regulation and declarative language, just discussion as concepts. So that would be a great place to go. Declarative language is also on social media, Facebook and Instagram. So you could follow me there where I try and post helpful information. The second resource is RDI Connect because RDI consultants as a community just very much think about co-regulation through this lens. And we're all thinking about it all the time. So if you find an RDI consultant in your area, they could be a great resource to you. A lot of us also work remotely. RDI's always been a remote therapy, just that we could communicate with families over Zoom before COVID even, but even more so now, it's definitely a, because it's parent coaching, it's just about connecting with those parents. But RDI Connect is also a great place to learn more about co-regulation through this lens. And then the actionable strategy is just start with competence and thinking about competence for the child. And then within whatever it is that you might want to do, you want to create roles that are competent, authentic, and contingent. So the child is competent, the role's authentic, not contrived, and it's contingent on you as their communication partner. And as you put those three pieces together, you create that flow where you truly are in sync moment to moment. All right. That was perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really like the way that you have just laid it out for us of the three, two, one, because it's such a nice flow of, okay, it all flows together. We know the three things that, that we need to do in order to create that competent role and to build that positive feedback loop. So thank you. And so even as you were talking about RDI just now, I'm thinking about how it might be really beneficial for some of those families that are receiving ABA services to also reach out to RDI. So I'm definitely going to reach out to an RDI consultant in my area and see if I can refer some families that way. I can see how that would be really, really beneficial for our Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a different mindset than ABA. Completely different, but I think it yep. I think it's a great thing to refer families to. Right, definitely. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Linda. I am so grateful that you have spent this hour with us and helping us just dive into what co-regulation is. And I'm just really grateful for your work and how you've brought RDI into the speech pathology realm. I'm sure you've helped you know, countless families, even in the the families that you, you know, might be a ripple effect of the speech therapist that you've, you know, impacted and the families they've impacted. So just thank you so much for sharing your work. And I highly recommend her handbooks, everyone. We hope to see you all back here soon. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and letting me share. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs.
We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe.